as we come to God's Word together. Today, we are going to learn from somebody who is right now most certainly in hell. And by that, I don't mean somebody who might be or will have to wait and find out if he's there. I mean somebody that is most certainly in hell. And the reason that I can say that with certainty is that Jesus said that he was going there. And when the judge of all the earth says that you're going there, you're going there. And indeed, that is the case. And today we are talking about the most notorious man in all of history. The most notorious betrayer in all of history. We're talking about somebody more notorious than Bundy, Dillinger, uh, Stalin, Paul Pot, and I think in a certain sense even Hitler. He is the most reviled traitor of all time, and if there is a scale of punishment in hell, which I believe that there is, he is receiving hell's harshest penalty. Whenever Scripture mentions his name, it always does so mentioning what he did, which means that neither in Scripture nor in eternity can he escape what he has done. So who is our I Met Jesus character from the Gospel of John this weekend? You have probably guessed it. It is Judas Iscariot. So let's begin by just a little bit of background on him. Who is Judas Iscariot? Well, like the other names that we've studied, uh, Judas was a very common name in the day. It was a form of uh, the name Judah. And Judah was, of course, one of the 12 sons of Jacob and one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there were a lot of Judases in the day. In fact, uh, Jesus had a few Judases in his own life. Uh, he had a brother named Judas. He had another disciple amongst the 12 that was named Judas. And then there was uh, this one in particular, Judas Iscariot. Now, what about that Iscariot part? Like, what's that? And like Mary Magdalene, it is not his last name. But uh, unlike Mary Magdalene, because it was simple to know what Magdalene meant, it meant she was from Magdala, uh, Iscariot is not as, as easy. In fact, we don't really know what it means. There's speculation. It meant that he was from the town of Kiriath. So, because Iscariot sounds a little bit like, you could say, Judas Kiriath, maybe, but unlikely. Uh, Another possibility is there was a group of, of, of assassins, <clears throat> kind of like a resistance group to the Romans, known as the Sicarii, and it literally meant dagger bearer, so they were famous for carrying a dagger and then they could assassinate somebody really quick. Iscariot sounds a little bit like Iscariot, and so maybe he might have been a part of that. But in the end, we don't really know what Iscariot means. And it's only speculation uh, to try to discover it. What is known is the character of the man. His reputation is defined by what he did. Let me give you <clears throat> some examples of this. Every <clears throat> In every list of disciples in the Gospels, Judas is always last. 
Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. There is one list in which he is not listed last, and in that list he is not listed at all, which I think is also not a coincidence. When Judas is named, even in the narrative of the story, almost always is listed what he did. Some examples, Matthew 10, verse 4, Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him? Mark 3, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him? Luke 6, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor? So no matter what good he did in his life, and no doubt he did some good things, he probably was nice to animals or something, and he... Uh, kissed his mom at night when he was a boy and and he probably had some other qualities that you could say you know that wasn't so bad about him in spite of all those things what he was known for was what he did to christ his betrayal of the son of god now we're going to get into john 13 a little bit it's kind of a broader story that we're telling today about judas but i want you to realize a few things about him The first is, I want you to realize the incredible privileges that Judas Iscariot enjoyed. Like, Judas, as one of his 12 disciples, had a front row seat to all of Jesus' miracles, save the transfiguration. Now just think about that for a moment. That means that Judas was in the boat when Jesus came walking on water. He was in the boat when Jesus woke up and said, Peace be still, and the raging storm. He saw it with his own eyes. He was standing there when Jesus walked up to the man who was blind and, 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 and healed him. You know, before he couldn't see, now he can see. Judas saw that. And the lame man who couldn't walk, and now he can walk. And the deaf man who couldn't hear, and now he can hear. And the deformed man with the, with the deformed hand suddenly now uh, made whole. Judas saw those individuals before Jesus healed them. And he saw on the other side of them. Listen, he was standing there by the grave. When Jesus stood in front of Lazarus' tomb and shouts out, Lazarus, come forth. And Judas Iscariot saw with his own eyes a dead man come walking out of the grave. Can you imagine the privilege of seeing all those things? And John says that what we know is only a part of what he actually did. And if everything Jesus did, the whole world couldn't contain the books. So in other words, he saw what we know that he saw. And he saw a lot that we don't know that he saw. But all the things that he, we don't know that he saw... Only multiply his guilt. Front row. Imagine. He also had a front row for Jesus' teachings. And you remember in the text, the crowds were amazed because Jesus spoke with an authority like they had never heard before. And he heard with his own ears the power of Jesus' teaching. He was standing there as Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. He heard Jesus tell the parables about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. You pick a moment of powerful teaching in the Gospels, Judas was there. He heard it himself. 
He no doubt was discipled by Jesus just in walking along the path as they lived life together. We also know that Judas was given authority by Jesus to teach and to perform, or I say here, exercise spiritual authority. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So Jesus deputizes his disciples. They go out in a kind of, uh, they're sort of the advance team for Jesus in the, in the countryside. And Judas was one of them. Have you thought about Judas being a preacher? He was a preacher. How about Judas being somebody with spiritual authority sufficient to cast out demons? How about Judas being able to heal people? Judas Iscariot by authority that Jesus gave to him. Ever think about that? Now, the reason that we know that Judas was doing these things is that in a moment we're going to look at the passage when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And all the disciples look around the room and they have no idea who he's talking about. It's not like when Jesus said that, all the disciples looked at Judas and said, we know it's you. You you can't preach your way out of a brown paper bag. We never saw you heal anybody of anything. And then there's the whole sinister look that you have about you. We've known all along that you're the bad guy in the story. It's you, Judas Iscariot. Our eyes have been on you. To the contrary, they have no idea who he's talking about. And in addition to that, when they decided who would be the one trusted with the money bag, guess who they put in charge of the money? Judas Iscariot was the treasurer of the group. You don't give the money bag to people that you don't trust. So that that bar of silver is somewhere with somebody highly reliable right now in the church, no doubt. So do you see here that our common thought about Judas probably as the, as the guy who wore the, you know, the, the black hat uh, is not at all the case. He was one of them. So much one of them that they had no idea who Jesus was talking about. He performed, Judas preached. He did some of these things that we're talking about. He was one of the guys. And to me, this is the big one. Day in and day out, for three years, Judas lived with the incarnate Son of God. You want to talk about a spiritual privilege? Live with Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? You realize that as they're uh, traveling around, they're not staying at the Ritz-Carlton, right? Many nights they're spending sleeping under the stars, around the fire, talking and joking and being guys and and judas was right there and every day he is seeing jesus doing normal things he saw jesus uh uh preparing meals and personal hygiene and all the things that we all have to do to take care of ourselves he walked with jesus they saw each other tired and hungry and uh, sick. I mean, just all the normal things where you really get to know somebody. In fact, if you notice that you don't really know somebody until you travel with them. We just got back from this uh, tour of Israel a couple weeks ago, and we had a group from our church that went. And I'm here to tell you, you don't know people until you've traveled with them. And all of in our group, we're all sworn to secrecy 
Uh, because we all have enough dirt on each other. It's like R- Russia and the U.S. during the Cold War, where there's that mutually assured destruction. If anybody says anything, we're just, we're nuking them, because we know things about them as well from being on the trip together. But for all of that time, those three years, Judas had an up-close and personal view of Christ. And for three years, he lived with the perfect human being. Now, what's that like? Last night in our, church, our service, there was a guy sitting right here, and he leaned over to his wife, and I knew exactly what he was saying. <laughs> but Jesus was perfect. Judas never saw anything in Jesus that would make him think, oh, he thinks he's the Messiah, does he? Well, I'm here to tell you, I've seen him behind the scenes, and I've seen a whole other side of him. Not one. Not one time did Jesus show an attitude. Not one time was Jesus selfish. Not one time did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Not one time was there anything that Judas saw other than absolute integrity. Imagine. Absolute perfection, attitude, action, and motivation. And every glimpse that Judas had of Jesus was of perfect righteousness. And you want to talk about multiplying the guilt. That multiplies Judas' guilt because Jesus never gave him one reason to betray him. Now those of us who've been betrayed by friends along the way, We might say, oh, I can't believe they did that to me. But in a certain sense, all of us have hypocrisies and little inconsistencies that somebody with an honest assessment could look at and say, oh. But Jesus never gave Judas one. In fact, Judas was Jesus' friend. Which brings us now to the story of Judas and to John 13. And where we are in the story in John 13 is we're in the upper room. Uh, this is the week of Jesus' passion. This is the week that he dies. This is the, the, the week that just a few days before he had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey to the praises of all the people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, we think you're great, Jesus. So there's the adoring crowds and he's teaching in the temple on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday, he gathers in the upper room to have the Passover meal with his disciples. But behind the scenes this whole time, there is a treacherous plot that is unfolding. And what happened was that as Jesus was doing his ministry, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they were, they were threatened by him. They were jealous of his popularity. They were threatened by what he was saying uh, because clearly he was teaching against them. And they also were afraid that if Jesus continued, the Romans would come and take their position and power away. And so along the way, these guys decided, you know what? we got to kill this guy. We are going to kill him. But how are we going to do it? He's so popular with the crowds. How could we ever get away with it? Because they were afraid of the crowds as well. And so in their scheming, They couldn't figure out. They thought, you know what? For this to happen, it's going to have to be an inside job. We are going to have to somehow turn somebody that is close to Jesus. 
who knows his patterns and knows where he's going so we can get him, preferably at night. When the crowds can't see, we got to get him. But who in his inner circle is ever going to betray him? How could we ever turn? They all seem so loyal. Have you seen them out preaching? All of them can cast out demons. We're never going to get one of those guys to turn on him. And then one day, there's a knock at the door. And the door opens. And who's standing in the doorway there at the Pharisee's house? But Judas Iscariot. Judas, so good to see you. What are you doing here? Can I talk to you? And Luke records the story this way. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad. No doubt they were glad. This is what they had been hoping would somehow develop. And agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And so we see here now that the trap has been set and the plot has been made. And all they need now is the right moment to set the trap and to get Christ. And notice also that the the price on his head, 30 pieces of silver. This was as the prophecy of Jeremiah and Zechariah prophesied that this would be the price upon the head of the Messiah. 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. Not a lot of money for the Son of God, I'd say. I think Judas could have held out for more. But he went for it for just 30 pieces of silver. And so here we are now into that Thursday night moment. They're in the upper room. They're seated around, laying, reclining around a table. They're about to partake in the Passover meal. And the text, we pick it up now in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And that last little sentence there is so powerful and poignant, isn't it? And it was night. It was night, the time of evil, the time when evil men can do what they want without anybody knowing. Notice verse 21. Jesus was troubled in spirit. One translation says that he was in great anguish of spirit. Why? Why do you think Jesus might have been feeling an extra measure of sorrow in his heart? And the answer to that is the next thing that he says. One of you will betray me. 
we see here the humanity of Christ, do we not? Isn't he a lot like us? In fact, doesn't betrayal have a certain sting and pain to it like nothing else? To have somebody in your life that you have opened your heart to, and maybe that's been in business, or maybe it's in friendship, or maybe it's in marriage or something else. You've opened your heart to them. And that very person that you have engaged in this relationship with is the very person who now is stabbing you in the back. How's that feel? It hurts, doesn't it? It's one thing to have an enemy do it, but to have a friend is a unique pain. I think if you live life in a broken world like ours, we all pick up a few Judases in our story, don't we? In fact, I'd imagine some of you right now, you maybe have some... Maybe have some names coming to mind, possibly, of people that mistreated you, that you had trusted. Do you see why maybe Jesus had great sorrow in his heart? One of you will betray me. David writes about a betrayal of a friend in Psalm 41. He said this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And so we see here in this text that Jesus was a lot like us. He knew the pain of somebody that was trusted bringing betrayal to us. Now, why do you suppose God the Father decreed that Jesus would die this way? Did Did it have to include a betrayal like this? Did it have to include somebody like Judas doing what he did? No, it didn't have to include that. But God the Father decreed that what Jesus would experience in gaining our redemption included the harshest kind of betrayal, the betrayal of a close friend, which I believe is why is one reason he did it is so that he would then be our faithful high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses so that he can relate to us and in his betrayal, we can relate to him. Because again, we all pick up a few Judases in our story. So Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So here's what happens. Judas takes the morsel. Satan enters into his heart in a kind of controlling way. He stands up from the table. He goes out of the place. He rushes to wherever the predetermined spot was, maybe a Pharisee's house, maybe Caiaphas's house. And he goes in there and he says, listen, now's the time. He's in the upper room. He's about to go over to Gethsemane. I know the spot well. He always goes there with us. He likes to go there and pray. Quick, get everybody together. And so word goes out, code blue or whatever it was, goes out. And the Pharisees begin to gather. And word goes to the cohort of Roman soldiers. The cohort was around 600 men. So at least a couple hundred Roman soldiers are are summoned. And they're putting on their weaponry. And they're getting their things together. And, and they're all gathering at whatever spot it was determined that they would gather. And there's Judas. And Judas is saying to them, all right, everybody, it's dark. You're not going to know who it is exactly. But I'll give you the signal. i tell you what. I'll give him a kiss. The guy I kiss, he's the guy. You get him. And so this treacherous plot is unfolding quietly in the back alleys of Jerusalem. Meanwhile, back to the upper room, there is Jesus now with the 11. And what is he doing? He is teaching them. The upper room discourse is chapters 13 through 17, a treasured teaching in the church. So many wonderful things that Jesus teaches in there. Let not your hearts be troubled and all the rest, all the while knowing of this plot that's going on. It's amazing to think about it. 
we have him instituting the Lord's Supper. He takes uh, a piece of bread and he takes a part of the cup of the Passover meal and he says, this now is the new covenant of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And they partook in the very first Lord's Supper and we've been doing it for 2,000 years since. And when all of that got done, the Gospel of Mark says that they sang a hymn. And then they stood up. And they left the upper room, and every, all the disciples, oh, we're going to Gethsemane. This is what we all, all, always do. And they made their way down through the Kidron Valley to a garden where there was an olive grove. And there was a press there, and it was called Gethsemane. After arriving, he takes Peter, James, and John, and they go a stone's throw away to have some privacy. And then Jesus steps even away from them, and he begins to pray. And we have that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where the realization fully comes upon him that he is about to die. He is about to bear the sins of the world. And the text says that he began to sweat and it was like drops of blood as he was in anguish as he thought about what was happening. What what are the disciples doing? Are they at his side? Are they helping him? No, they're sleeping. And so here you have a, 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 a disciple in the midst of betraying him. The rest of his friends are not there with him, helping him in his time of distress. He is alone. Luke 22, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And indeed he did. And do you see the irony of this? I mean, here you have hand-picked friend, hand-picked disciple. Just uh, uh, hours before, a few hours before, Jesus had washed Judas's feet in the upper room, taking his dirty feet into his hands, knowing full well these feet were about to run and betray him to his death. And you just see how Jesus loved Judas to the end. And so Judas kisses Jesus. He is arrested. The events unfold that you, if you're a Christian, you are very familiar with. As he is uh, beaten, he is tried, he is flogged, he is crucified, he dies. A death which Judas was complicit for. And this reality comes down upon Judas. And here's the rest of Judas' story. I'm reading now Matthew 27. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? He He was just a pawn in the plan. They could care less about him. Get out of here. See to it yourself, they said. After throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Now, Acts fills in the story here, and it's a gory part of the story, but it's in the Bible, so I'm safe in church quoting it, right? And all you young people, you're going to like this part of the story, so if you haven't been paying attention, get in with me now, okay? Because the text tells us that Judas, even Judas's hanging of himself was done poorly. He hung himself, apparently, on the edge of some rocks, and as he hung there, the rope broke. And Judas, his body, maybe even still alive, we don't know, 
falls down upon the rocks, and Acts tells us that his bowels rushed forth. See, young people, I told you you might like that part of the story. And so you get to the end of Judas Iscariot, and he's a traitor, and his body is dashed upon the rocks. A fitting end, don't you think, for a man like this? But in reality, it's not the end of the story. And so I am now where I began. Right now, Judas Iscariot is suffering in hell. And I wonder what he's thinking about. What is he reflecting upon? Is he remembering moments with Jesus? Is he remembering certain teachings? Is he thinking about what he did? I don't know. I don't know. But I do think he must realize the privileges that were his and the absolute stupidity of what he did with them. And I would like to ask this question now. Can we learn a lesson from a man in hell? Can we learn a lesson from the life and the tragedy that was Judas Iscariot? And indeed, I think we can, and I would like to highlight a few for you today. The first thing that we see here, friends, is we see in Judas Iscariot that you can have incredible spiritual light without authentic saving faith. You would think that somebody that experienced and saw and heard all that that Judas did, I mean, that's the guy that's got to be going to heaven, isn't he? I mean, if you, if, if, you can, if you can hear Jesus teach and you can understand what he said and if you can exercise authority, if you can preach, if you can prophesy, if you can heal, if you can cast out demons, I mean, that's got to be somebody that's going to heaven, right? I mean, Judas Iscariot, he's in. I mean, you get to the pearly gates, you pull out your I was one of his disciples cards and, oh, come on in. Fine. Is that the way that it works? No, it is not. In fact, even as we think about mission them, we could envision if we if only we could if only we could get information out into the community. I mean, why don't we get vans? Let's take our money and let's buy vans and let's mount the biggest speakers on top that you've ever seen and let's just drive around the neighborhoods. And Steve, Steve, you just yell at them. Yell the gospel at them. If only they could know and hear it, then they would be saved because they would have light and all they need is knowledge. And if they just understand the gospel, they're in, they're going to heaven. That's all it takes. How simple is this? Friends, I want you to realize with Judas that he was not lacking in any of these things. He knew and understood what Jesus taught. He saw with his own eyes the miracles that Jesus did. He likely performed some himself. And yet, at the end of the day, what do we find? His body dashed upon the rocks and his soul in hell. And there is a great and frightening lesson in this. That knowledge of the gospel and being around what Jesus is doing does not guarantee entrance into eternal bliss and forgiveness of sins. Judas was a spiritual opportunist. He signed on with Jesus, and who wouldn't? I mean, he was the young rabbi. Maybe or maybe not, he'd already seen, maybe he was there when Jesus uh, turned the water into wine, and he thought to himself, this is my kind of guy. 
I mean, this will be great for three years. I love wine. And so this will be going on all the time. And he joins in with the group and he, uh, he thinks to himself, this is a great way for me to kind of advance myself because I'm connected with the popular guy and this is going to be a great gig for me. He was with Jesus while it was good for him. But then he became disillusioned and Jesus wasn't becoming the political leader perhaps that he thought he ought to be and he wasn't becoming kind of the the monarch that he thought that he would be, the king of Israel and all the rest. He became disillusioned. And when he became disillusioned, Christ became a commodity to him. He sold him on eBay for 30 pieces of silver. What can I get out of him? That's all I'm interested in. And my friends, I want to tell you, this same spirit is alive and well in the church to a degree that I don't even know. I'm not God. I don't know the hearts. I don't know the American church. I don't know this church. I can't tell one heart from my, I know my own heart. That's all I got. But it seems to me that the church is oftentimes filled with people who are kind of in it for what they can get out of it. And so they have some trouble in their life and they say, oh, I think I'm going to go to that church over there. And they go to the church and you know what? There's friendly, nice people smiling, saying, hey, good to see you. Good to have you here. And they're, oh, man, I don't get treated like this. When I go to Walmart, they just say, hi. I rather like it. And then they get involved maybe in the service and sort of enjoy the sort of the vibe of worship and the sense of God and Wow, there's something bigger than me. I kind of like that. And, and they listen to the sermon like, oh, Pastor Steve, he's, he's so funny. We like it. And when the, when it's done, people are good to have you here and out the door you go. When you drive home and you sort of feel the sense of like, I kind of like that. I think I'm going to go back. It's like a drug. And maybe you get involved in a small group. People care about me. There's people there for me when I'm in trouble. I kind of like that. I got to talk the lingo and I got to sort of do the sort of things, you know, that Christians do, but I, I'm sort of in this for what I can, what I can get out of it. And eternity will show who here is here for Christ and who here is here for what comes with Christ. And there is an eternal difference between those two things. Jesus taught this. Ironically, Judas would have heard this in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And friends, we see here from the lips of Jesus himself that it is very possible to do great things for Christ and in the end not know him. And that's exactly what it says. I will say to them, he doesn't say, oh, you should have done more. Or what you did wasn't great. What is that issue when it comes to the bottom line? I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Or we would say it this way. The gospel of Jesus, that Jesus has died for us, and that all who believe enter into a relationship with God through Christ. That that dynamic of authentic faith had never taken root. There was lots of religion and spiritual activity, but there was no reality to it. That was Judas 
He blended in. Nobody else knew. He was one of the disciples. No, Someone's going to betray me. Who is it? We have no idea. We look around the room. Everybody looks good. Much like right now. Everybody looks good. You all look like disciples to me. Here you are. You're listening intently. Seem interested for the most part. We've sung our songs. We've clapped at baptisms. We've given to the Lord. But do you know him? Or is this a kind of therapy for you? Is this merely a advance myself thing? Eternity will reveal who knew him and who didn't. And Judas is a scary example of that. And I say that to urge all of us to make sure that we know him. To make sure that we are not in this because I make great business connections at church. I'm not in this because I feel good about it. I am in it because I love Christ. Love him. And this is where I think his hypocrisy helps us. You might say, what what does the real thing look like? Well, we see what the wrong thing looks like in Judas, which I think makes the real thing look even better. So let me just draw some comparisons here about his hypocrisy and what real faith looks like. And to do this, I go back in the people that we've studied already. Let's go back to Mary. Remember Mary? She was the one with the perfume that was so expensive. And one day she broke the perfume flask, poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair. They said that the worth of that was something like a year's wages, $50,000 maybe approximately in our economy. There you have an extravagant gift. And you remember, what was Judas's response to that? Oh, what a waste that is. On him, no less. Why wasn't this sold and the money, you know, put into the treasury that I manage so that it can be dispersed to the poor? Do you remember that? What did we see in that moment? Mary loved some, Mary had love and Judas had love, didn't they? Mary loved Jesus, Judas loved money. Materialism, the kind of love, the idolatry of things, very inconsistent with somebody that's loving Jesus more than anything else. There's an indicator of what real faith and inauthentic faith can look like. I think there's a lesson in that. I think the clearest lesson is the difference between Judas and Peter. You know, that night was a bad night for both Judas and Peter. Do you remember the story of Peter? We've already studied Peter. Judas and Peter did kind of the same thing. Not exactly, but kind of the same thing that night. Remember Peter's story. The Roman soldiers come. Peter grabs a sword, takes a very bad swing at the wrong kind of person if you were going to set him free. And uh, he drops the sword. He begins to run. They take Jesus away. Peter kind of doubles back now, follows them all the way to uh, Caiaphas' house, standing in the bushes. The apostle John knows somebody on the inside, gets Peter in along with himself, and there he is warming himself by the fire. 
Jesus is inside being beaten and standing up to the strongest men of the day. And out in the courtyard, Peter's wilting like an October flower in front of a little girl. Denied Jesus three times. It was a bad night for Peter as well. The cock crows. Peter realizes what he has done and he rushes away and weeps bitterly, the text says. So both Judas and Peter realize that they have done something very wrong. Both of them, in a sense, have betrayed Jesus. But their response to that highlights the difference between what hypocrisy looks like and what the real thing looks like. What does Judas do? He feels remorse. What does Peter feel? He feels remorse. What does Judas do? He takes action, right? Throws the money back in the, in the, in the, in the temple. Where they go, oh, it sounded pretty good for Judas right now, but then what did he do? He went out and he self-murdered. When your response to sin is sin, that's an indication of inauthentic faith. What did Peter do? He goes out and he weeps bitterly. We actually don't know that much of what he did, but the next time we find him, he's with the disciples in the upper room. He wasn't looking for a tree to hang himself on. He doubles back in in a sense in his faith and is longing to be restored to Jesus. Mary Magdalene comes and says, they've taken his body. Who rushes? Who runs to the tomb? Peter runs to the tomb, right? Who do we find at the end of the story? Still hanging with the disciples and with Jesus. It is Peter. Who's restored by Jesus three times? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. It's Peter. And what I want you to realize here is that the difference between those two, both of them sinned. And guess what, Christians? We all sin, do we not? And some of our sins are the daily sins which we feel remorse for. Some of them are the big ones. Kind of defining ones to us. How do we respond to sin in our life? Is it all about control, like Judas? Or is it all about restoration with the one that I love, like Peter? And the reason I say this is we see this often. Somebody that is somehow connected with our church, maybe deeply, maybe on the periphery, something happens in their life, and all of a sudden, I've got to meet with you. I've got to meet with you. They want to meet with somebody. They want to meet with me. They want to tell the story. They're desperate. They want to be absolved of their guilt. And they are in damage control mode. Don't tell this person. Please do not tell that person. And I really don't, don't, do not breathe a word to this person over here. I'm trying to manage this whole thing. I must be in control. Is that what repentance looks like? No. Because we see real repentance as well. Somebody has a major failure in their life. What is their response? They want to talk to somebody. But in their talking to somebody, they're not trying to damage control. They're not trying to uh, work relationships in a way that somehow minimizes the, 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 the pain of it. They want to be right with God again. They want a sense of closeness again with their Savior. They want to make things right and restore their testimony. In a sense, they don't care who knows about it because they know that God knows about it. 
And if God knows about it, then who gives a rip about a human being? I want that to be right again. And I, I will confess to who I need to confess to. I will make a recompense to who I need to make recompense with because I want to be right with God again. That is what real faith looks like. That is what loving Christ looks like. And so I would like to ask today, and these are just two, time doesn't allow more, Do you love the Lord? Is this all about Him? Or are we in it for us? And to give glory to God, I want to also add how things could have been different for Judas. What if Judas would have thrown those 30 pieces of silver And rather than trying to find a rope in a tree, would have tried to find another disciple, perhaps in the upper room where they often gathered, and would have burst into the room and would have said to the men, I have failed the Lord. I have sinned, my brothers. I'm here seeking forgiveness. Will you pray for me? I want to be right with the Lord. If Judas would have done that, in a spirit of true contrition and humility. Do you think that God could have forgiven him, even the betrayal of the Son of God? Because I do. And why do I say that? Where sin does abound, God's grace does there much more abound. There is grace with God for every sin, even the most grievous sin ever committed. There is grace and there is forgiveness if we will humble ourselves before him. Go to him in a desire to be restored in that relationship and to receive the forgiveness that God offers through Christ. You, my friend, that secret thing that you're thinking about right now, that can be forgiven too. And I would point you to the great mercy and grace of our God. It is available to all who will humble themselves before the Lord. Even when our lives look a lot like Judas Iscariot, the great betrayer, who gives us a model not to follow. So why don't we just take a moment right now quietly. Meditation moment. Why don't you just quiet your heart before the Lord and then I will pray.